Right, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Romans chapter 8 today. We're in a series called Living Spirit. I'm just walking through Romans 8. I uh, want to continue to invite you to read the entire chapter. Take a moment throughout the week. It takes six, seven minutes to read the whole thing. You'll be blown away by it. And today, uh, I want to focus in on just three verses. I want to unpack them. I want to ask you, as I preach this sermon, that you will ask God to give you one verse or a phrase or one thing that I say that can inspire and encourage you. And I also want you to be asking God, what is one thing that comes out of my mouth in the next 20 to 30 minutes, however long I'm up here, that you could use to bless and encourage someone else? Um, I, I love the word that God has given me to speak to you today. I've been encouraged by it. I anticipate that God's going to move in the heart of somebody in this room through this word. And I know that when a word leaves the mouth of God, it does not return to God void. It performs. So I'm asking for God to speak. But I also know when God speaks, it's not what we want to hear. It's what we need to hear. When God, when God speaks, it's sometimes to comfort us. And where we are in life, it's often to convict us. And I want you to be ready to hear what the word of God has to say to you today. Chapter 8, verse 12 through 14 says this. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. All right, for the reading of the word, the church said, Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. God, bring this word to life for us today. That we may not skirt around its power and its truth but that it will call us deeper into your heart, that it will make us more aware of the impact and effects of the sinful nature. And whatever it is you need to bring to life today in order to lead us into greater forms of transformation that we may look like Christ, will you have your way with us today? And God, may your Holy Spirit pour through me the gift of preaching this morning uh, that Christ may be formed in hearts through the words of my preaching. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, God has, God could one-up any emotion, any request you bring to God. He has a story that could be greater than your story. But God doesn't often choose to do that. Uh, now, I bet you know someone in your life, a friend, a family member, someone, a co-worker, who they are like a one-up waiting to happen. You know what I'm saying? It's like you have a story and immediately they have a story that's better than your story. Sometimes it works like this. All right, uh, so when I was in high school, uh, back in the mid-90s, this was 20 years ago, so I'm not encouraging anyone in the room around teenage age to try this, but we formed in our youth group, a group of guys, we formed what we called the Banana Busters. And for over two months, what we would do every weekend is we would go and we would wrap the houses of members of our church, toilet paper their houses. And we were good. We had precision. We could go in and out. We could do a hit job in a minute and a half. That's all we needed. Now, back in the mid-90s, so we didn't, you know, a lot of houses didn't have security and snipers on the roofs and crazy things like, like people have today. All right? It was a different time where we could do things like this. And after we wrapped a house, we would take a banana, peel it, and then smush the banana in a mailbox and leave a note that you got busted by the banana busters. It was crazy, all right? Because in the hallways at church, people would be, they would be sharing stories about how, man, we had that banana in our mailbox too. It was great. It was awesome, all right? But then I've shared that story with people before, and then they end up having a story that could beat my story of what they used to do with their friends back in high school. 
about taking tires off the wheels of cars and, you know, getting Vaseline and rubbing it on the doorknobs of houses and cars. And, and it just becomes whose story is better than the other person's story. Now, what often happens, though, if we live this kind of way where we want to one-up someone else is that we're really not listening to people. I have found in my own life, so I don't want to be a one-upper. Forgive me if I've ever done that to you when we've talked. But when someone shares a story, and I think I may have a story that I want to share in response, I'll make sure that I follow up with their story with questions about their story. Tell me more about that. How did it form you? How did, how, how did friendships, how were they formed when you would do some of those things together? So I want to hear more about them, and then maybe I'll share my story. So how does this happen with God? Because when we come to God in prayer, any emotion you bring to God, God could respond with a story that's better than your story. You come to God with a story about how you've been betrayed this week, God could quickly respond with stories of betrayal, of how people have betrayed him every single day, about how people have betrayed his son. Uh, any story you bring, any emotion you bring, Jesus has been there. He has a story that's better than your story. But God doesn't do that because what you have in the Bible are verses where God says, I want you to bring me any emotion, cast your cares on me because I care for you. So God is offering us, inviting us to come and share things with him. But I think there are a few times where God is really quick to want to one-up whatever you bring in front of him. And specifically, I think of times when you come to God with how you are being weighed down by your past, God is quick to share. You think your past is weighing you down, but what I accomplished through Jesus is greater than how you're allowing your past to weigh you down. You think your sin is weighing you down and you're coming to me about how your sin is tearing you apart. I got to one-up that with a story about how Jesus, what he's done to your sin and for your sin and what he's done for you. There are times when we are being weighed down by shame and isolation and sin and past and failures that God is quick to want to place in front of you what he has accomplished through Jesus. So you can see the beauty of what Jesus accomplished so we can help transform your life, give you a new identity, a reason to live, so you are not weighed down by some of those things in your life. In verse 12 through 14, Paul starts talking about sin and obligation and urges, but it begins with this one word, and maybe in your version it has therefore, which anytime you see that show up in the Bible, you've got to ask, what is it there for? Some of your Bibles don't have therefore, it has so then. And whenever you see these words like a therefore or a so then, it is connecting that to what was before it. Because what, before, what came before that is laying this foundation. It's giving you something to build this next truth on. And here's what Paul had just talked about in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 9 through 11. You heard my friend Luke unpack this last week. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you so that even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. And to me, I, this is like the verse that I hinge all of chapter 8 on, verse 11. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. So before we really dive deep into what 12 through 14 talks about, this whole phrase of because of Christ changes everything in your life because of what Christ has done. We can talk about the sinful nature and urges and obligations and what happens if we follow its dictates and what happens if we follow the Spirit because of what Jesus has done. 
So to have that in front of us, of what God has accomplished through Jesus, and to know that when it comes to the sinful nature, you are not in this room as someone who needs to trust in your own strength to overwrite the sinful nature in you, or that you need to trust in your own ability to correct the mistakes and sin in your life. It's that we are trusting in Jesus' ability and Jesus' willingness to, to do something about our sin, to forgive our sin. But it's more than just forgiveness of sin, and I don't want to diminish forgiveness of sins. Because for Jesus, it's not just a matter of you coming to him about your sin and him forgiving your sin. Jesus doesn't just want to forgive sin. He wants to demolish sin. So it's not just us coming to Jesus, trusting in his ability and willingness to forgive our sin. It's that we need to go a step further and trust in Jesus' ability and willingness to demolish. Jesus is into demolition. Demolition. To totally destroy and disrupt and do away with sin forever because of Christ. Now, you also have the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned, I think, 21 times. Up until Romans 8 in the book of Romans, Paul has only mentioned the Spirit twice. Even in all of Romans 7, where Paul is talking about what I want to do, I don't do, and what I do, I, I shouldn't do. And in and, and, and Romans 7, I, I still don't know if Paul's referring to him, him on his own self or if he's just talking about here's just the state of humanity. There are times we do things and we know we don't need to do them. But even in Romans 7, when he's having this tension within himself, the Spirit never shows up. He never writes about it. And I think there are sometimes we, we may see Paul one day and be like, dude, so you wait until Romans 8 to really talk about the Spirit. And he may say, I, I had no clue I really did that. I, it wasn't an intentional move. Maybe it was an intentional move. Because up until Romans 8, Paul's been established in some pretty solid doctrine and theology. And then in Romans 8, when it gets down to the grind of life with God, and this tension between the spirit and sinful nature. And what do we do with these urges? Paul states an argument where he mentions the spirit 21 times because at the central of the Christian faith, at the very center, when things get dramatic, when things begin to unfold and there's the grind of life that is there, the spirit of God is at the very middle. Transformation doesn't happen without the spirit. Dealing with the sinful nature doesn't happen without the power of the spirit. So Paul begins laying this out in front of you. And Paul's also fully aware that for anyone listening to him then, both Jews and Gentiles, and today in this room with, I think, all Gentiles, were people who we know we have a past. We know there are failures. And we're coming to God wanting to hear this fresh word. And Paul's aware of all these things. He's aware of how the sinful nature is attempting to lure you into feeling like there are obligations and urges that it's hard for you to say no to. You know the power of a cell pitch? I mean, do you, can you identify the person in your life? You're like, that is the person that could sell anything to anybody because they're good at it. I, I, I'm amazed, even, even for those of you in this room who are in any form of advertising and marketing, I wish I could be, just sit in the boardroom, just be a fly on the wall in a boardroom of, of some conversations that go on like at Nike or Amazon or FedEx where they're forming these commercials that are going to come out of like the Super Bowl and all the ideas that are being thrown around. Because I know there are a lot of things that go into advertising and marketing that I'm not going to point out. But one of the, it seems that like at the heart of so much of this is how can we help create a need that people either don't know they have or they know they have, but we make them feel even more desperate so that they will trust and believe in our product or our service, whatever it may be. I'm always hesitant to buy into anything that says, if you do this, it will change your life forever, all right? Because I want Jesus to change my life forever, you know, not, not a protein shake or something like that. But the way advertising, the way it works, marketing, I cannot create a need and have a sell pitch 
that will make you feel like this is what you need for pleasure or for self-fulfillment or to get into the future. When I was a junior in college, I lived with five guys. We lived in a house together. And I remember one night, it was getting close to spring break campaigns, and some of us were at spring break campaigns that were going to take us to the beach, and uh, we were five guys, and we had, which is a hamburger place, that's pretty cool, all right, uh, but anyway, uh, we, were, we were concerned about our ad, like we wanted six packs when, we, when the summer was getting close. I remember there was a commercial one night, and it was this, there was this commercial on like this, you could buy this like belt and tie it around, and and the way they showed it in the commercial is you could sit down at a desk and like type away, like writing a paper. Or you could just sit there watching TV or you could stand there washing dishes and, and this machine would stimulate your ab muscles to where it would build a six-pack for you without you having to do any of the workout. And three of the five guys in my house were like, we've got to get this. So they put in their money. They pulled in their money together. They purchased this product. It showed up, and it did not work like what the commercial showed. They couldn't sit there and type on a computer while this thing was stimulating their abs. They, they had to basically, it lasted one day, and they just gave up on it. It just didn't work. All right, here's how whatever you want to call the devil or Satan, or the powers of darkness, the powers of evil. Here's how they work. They are students. The powers of evil, powers of darkness are students. They want to be masters at the cell pitch. Coming at you with one way, but if it didn't work two weeks ago, then they're forming a new angle to come at another door of your heart, attempting to lure you into their new cell pitch. And if that doesn't work, they're forming a plan to come at another place in your life, or in your heart, or in your mind. So that they can penetrate and lure you into thinking, if I just give in to this, it will provide the pleasure or the success or the identity that I would love. And Paul's fully aware of how this works. And this is why he talks about the sinful nature and the spirit. In verse 12, he talks about you are not obligated like to follow these urges. And the point isn't that the sinful nature is no longer a problem once you give your life to Jesus. I've sat with people who've gone, through, gone into depressions questioning their faith because there were addictions in their life or maybe pornography or something that the, it seemed that the harder they prayed, it just wouldn't leave them alone. It just kept coming. And sometimes we do think that if at conversion, when we're baptized, then things of the past will no longer have the same impact or they, they will no longer knock with the same force. And what we learn and discover is we give our lives to Jesus and the powers of darkness keep coming and the powers of darkness keep knocking. And Paul's aware of it. So he makes these statements. And if you give into your urges or giving into urges, this is a very real possibility. And Christians don't need to act like it's not. That God's prior action and his accomplishments through Jesus doesn't exempt us from temptation. And, the way, and what's helpful and what I hope we can do today is to acknowledge that the sinful nature exists. That it's real but no, and, and to know it exists. And this explains how sin works. But it can never excuse, excuse this sin or, to, or justify it. L let me say it again, all right? We need to acknowledge how the sinful nature works. And when we acknowledge it, it explains sin. But it can't be an excuse to justify sin. Sometimes I hear people who sin, they fall short, and what they say is, well, I'm only human. And I want to respond with, to be human in the Bible in the first place was not a bad thing, it was a good thing. 
to be human was to be made in the image of God. It wasn't bad. So actually for you to sin is what it means to be unhuman, not human. But these forces of darkness are alive. Sometimes I hear people, maybe they have a, a kid sin or a, a boy who's made some bad decisions. They say, well, boys would just be boys. And we need to raise the bar on expectations of what God has for humanity and for you. Because I don't think Jesus looks at us when we sin and says, I didn't die for you to willfully sin only to fall back on grace. I didn't die for you to treat grace as something you just fall back on living however you want to live. If you back up to Romans chapter 6, he he says it like this. In chapter 6 verse 1, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Because if that's how it works, who doesn't want in on that? The more you sin, the more grace you get. Well, sweet, I want more grace. <laughs> All right, he's, he's putting to, to bed this whole argument. In verse 2, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? So what is dominating you? What dominates your allegiances in your life that has the potential to impact emotions and behavior? What is the dominating force Uh, And the best way to think about this isn't where you give your time, because let's be honest, you sleep more than you do almost anything else in your life, right? You sleep and you work probably half of the hours of a week. So it's not always like, how much time am I giving to God? And then I can base the rest of my life on how important God is to me because of that. It's how are we devoting and wanting to trust in God to where it has a ripple effect on everything else in my life. What are you being dominated by? Because God is really, he's into sharing his goodness and his blessings and his favor and his gifts. But God is not into sharing the throne. All right, so God sits on the throne, but it's not, if you were to define what the ultimate allegiance is in your life, we cannot respond with, well, it's God and anything. It can't be God and family or God and nation or God and spouse or God and work or God in me, or God in flag, or God in anything, our ultimate allegiance is God. Well, what's the dominating force? If you look in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, and and I've been reading some from the NLT, so it may not say this exactly the way in whatever version you read in the NIV, KJV, NRSV, but here's what it says, Romans 8, verse 5, those who were dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. And in verse 6, Paul talks about the mind. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. When Paul's talking about the mind, he's not talking about intellectual capability or intellectual capacity or your IQ or what did you make on the ACT or SAT. For Paul, the mind is the place where decisions are made, where there is this tension between the Spirit of God working in your life and the sinful nature at work in your life. Um, What's helpful for me sometimes is to think about what is the primary lens in my life and what are all the secondary lenses? Because if we're not careful, we begin putting on primary lenses that aren't gospel and it's not Jesus. The primary lens, when the primary lens is gospel and Jesus and we wake up surrendering to this truth, then all the other lenses in our lives, all the other convictions and work and family is being seen and filtered through gospel. 
But if we're not careful, what happens in life is that there, there are other primary lenses to take center stage, whether it's work or politics or family, and then that becomes primary lens, and we are viewing gospel and Jesus and faith and church through a primary lens that should not be there. Now, this is not as easy as this, well, I, I just need to change my lens because if we allow that lens to stay on too long and it's not gospel, it becomes like welded there. It's like glued on. And we need God to perform this surgery to remove the primary lens and to place a new one on so we're seeing all of life through gospel, through Jesus. It's about how the mind begins to think because whatever the primary lens is in our lives is what is training our mind. And it's what triggers emotions and behavior throughout an entire day came across a story recently. Somebody sent this to me. Maybe you saw it. Uh, I think uh, uh, ABC ran a story on it. His name was Michael Kent. And Michael Kent was, um, he was a white supremacist. He was a skinhead. He was into some violent gang work. Uh, angry man. Spent, went in and out of prison. In fact, I have a picture if you'll show it up there. Um, of all these tattoos on his body, he never went into a tattoo parlor to get them. They all came from prison. This was a guy who would not work, who, who made decisions in his life. He would never work with or work for someone who wasn't white. 20 years he lived this kind of way. On his body, he had Nazi signs that he ended up having to remove. His first time into a tattoo parlor was to remove some of these. And what changed in his life is when they switched his caseworker. And his new caseworker that was given to him was Tiffany. And Tiffany showed up at his house one day. <laughs> And they struck up this friendship. And one of the first things Tiffany did for, to him and for him is Tiffany looked in his house and all over his house, hanging above the couch in the living room. Like the first thing you would see in the living room was this huge German flag. There were Nazi symbols and there was stuff all over his house about hatred. And she said, if you want to live a different way, if you want to try to train your mind to where you are not doing some of the same things, it will send you back to prison, you've got to take all this stuff down and replace it with something more positive. So she replaced it with smiley faces on his walls, all right? And it began to change because I don't, I hope there's no one here who has like Nazi stuff in your house. But when you wake up, what is your vision, your eyes, your allegiance? What's some of the first things you were reaching for in the morning to lay the foundation for the rest of your day? Because if the first thing you reach for is to turn on the news station or to check politics or to see what Facebook arguments you need to dive into for the day, it sets a mood and emotions for the rest of the day. But if you form habits in your life to when you are waking up trusting in the Spirit, wanting what is best for God, wanting God to work in and through your day, that will lay a foundation for emotions and reaction and behavior for the rest of your day. The mind's a powerful thing. And if you allow your mind to give into the sinful nature, it leads to forms of death. But if you allow your mind to be given over to the Spirit, it leads to life and peace. Somebody here needs some life and peace today? Give your mind over to the Spirit. Let me show you this, though. In chapter 8, verse 1 and 8 through 13, I know there are some people, some scholars who've wrestled with this. Because if you set these side by side, they almost seem to be in contradiction with each other. So chapter 8, verse 1 is, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. And chapter 8, verse 13 is uh, um, that for if you, if you live by its dictates, if you give in to the sinful nature, its dictates, and what it's, 
all of its urges, if you give in to them, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the, dark, uh, uh, the, deeds of the sinful nature, you will live. Chapter 8, verse 1 is about security and who we are in God. A verse 13 seems to give responsibility like you are making some choices in your life that either lead to life or death. Some forms of thought out there, you have some forms of thought like Calvinism where there is the belief of eternal security that when God has elected someone or someone gives their life to God, there is nothing that person can do to ever lose their salvation again. Some, the phrase that's often been used is once saved, always saved. And then you have views of like Arminianism, not minions, all right, Arminianism, where, where it's a freedom of choice, where you get to make choices in your life, where you make choices, and once you give your life over to God, that it's possible for you to lose your salvation. And some people have allowed that pendulum to swing so far as like, if saved, barely saved. Some people are somewhere in the middle. And you have verses that you can go to to, to like back up any of this. I mean, for Calvinism, where eternity is secured, uh, you have places like in John 10, where nothing can take those of God out of his hand. For Arminians, people who believe that you may be able to lose your salvation, that's places like Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10, where if you continue to willfully sin, then, th th then maybe status could be changed. And I think what these people could both agree on and believe in, because a lot of times I'm trying to find common ground, I'm trying to pull people together, is when it comes to this, of, of, if 8-1 is the one you gravitate to more than 13 or 13 more than 1, then you, you begin to lean more into security or more into responsibility. Let me, let me try to make a little bit more sense of this, all right? I think and I hope that we can agree that a believer needs to believe in transformation, daily transformation into the image of Christ. I, I hope we can agree that a believer must progress in their battle against sin and evil. Here's what happens with A1 and A13. Is if you lean really hard into eternal security, but you do not take responsibility seriously, it leads to forms of apathy, passive faith, complacent faith, inactive faith, that you will live the way you want to live. You just want to make sure there's a security net that's going to catch you in the end. But it's also possible for you to lean heavily into responsibility and moral responsibility, but to not take seriously security. And what this does is it births in your life anxiety because you begin trying to be responsible so that you can earn your salvation or keep your salvation instead of trusting in the confidence of being able to come before God because we belong to Jesus. And I think what 8.1 and 8.13 is doing is trying to place in front of you security that those who belong to Jesus, you don't need to be held down by your shame or your past. God has saved you. He has brought you into his family. And because of that, there is responsibility in your life to pursue the things of God, to go after the things of God, to allow them to dominate you. I don't know if verse 13 is, as Paul means this by a threat or not, if he's placing people this in front of them. I know in Deuteronomy 30, this is where Moses talks about, hey, you can make a choice there. You're going to choose life or you're going to choose death. And for Moses in Deuteronomy 30, 30 if you choose life, it was going to lead to a new land, a fresh land, where the people of God were going to multiply and grow. If you choose life today, if you choose life in Jesus, it leads to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not just land, the spirit who indwells and makes all things real. This death that Paul talks about in the sinful nature, it does bind you. Sin binds you to what is corrupt. 
and we need to acknowledge that. That to be dependent upon the physical or social indulgences in our life, it distances, distances us from God. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Even those secret sins in your life that no one else knows about, other people in your life are feeling the impact of that sin. Because it's making you into someone who's not giving your life over to God. Even the secret sins, the private sins, no one else knows about has an impact on the mission of God in your own life and all those around you. Romans 8 is hopeful. Paul doesn't write this in a way that makes people feel bad about their sin. He places in front of them hope and resurrection and what Jesus has accomplished. But he wants people to take seriously the deeds of the body. And this is why Paul says, if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. It's not that through the power of the Spirit you make sure that that flame doesn't get out of control. Or you try to keep that sin in a little parameter and manage it to where it doesn't become a wildfire. It's you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature. Let Jesus destroy them. Do away with them. And the promise in verse 14 is this. Those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. So up until this point in chapter 8, there's the tension between sinful nature and the Spirit. And Paul says it in a way where for each of you, this tension is happening in your mind and in your heart. The spirit versus the sinful nature. But in 8 verse 14, it's not about the sinful nature and the spirit. It is about the spirit and that you get to become a children of God. It's family language now. It's privilege kind of language. That God, now it's not just a matter of you being someone who's wrestling with this stuff. It's that you are your children of God being led by God. There's a, and with this, in fact, uh, can I ask the elders, if you will, go ahead and go to your places where you receive people. And for our prayer leaders, just so people can see where you are. There was a pastor who was teaching on this in his church about transformation and new life with God and what it means that the law of the Spirit is stronger than the law of the sinful nature. But there was a guy in that Bible study who was having trouble grasping it. So the pastor reached out to him and said, uh, when can you get together so we can talk about it more? And the only time that guy had available was when he flew his little private plane. So he asked the pastor if he would come with him to fly his plane one day. And the pastor showed up and saw the plane. And his prayer life increased. Because it was a small little plane and the pastor was worried of, I, like, I feel like if I sit in that, it's going to break. How in the world is it going to get off the ground with you and me in it? And the pilot, this guy with the plane, said this. What you need to believe in is that the law of aerodynamics is stronger than the law of gravity. And that is what sets you free so that you can fly. So they started going up and the pastor used that guy's own words against him. The pastor said, did you hear what you just said? That the law of aerodynamics is greater than the law of gravity. And that is what sets you free so you can fly. And it's the law of the Spirit that is stronger than the law of Moses or the law of the sinful nature that sets you free so that you can fly. Now, if that pastor opened up the door and tried to jump out, this logic doesn't work anymore, right? You've got to stay connected to the source, and the Spirit of God is moving in His people this morning to fly, to join in an adventure, to be set free for the glory of God. Can we bow our heads?
God, if truth was spoken from the stage today, let that truth take hold of ears, hearts, minds, motives, uh, so that it can bear great fruit this week. And God, if I spoke any word that didn't honor who you are, uh, forgive me for it and let that word fall to the ground and be trampled and bear no fruit. Where there are allegiances in this room that need to be shifted because they are off, come with your spirit to shift them to move our minds and our hearts to be fully dominated by the Spirit of God. The place in front of us, all Jesus has accomplished in the past and in the present and in the future, and invite us deeper into your ways. I pray this in the power of your name this morning. Amen. If there's a need in your life, we have shepherds up front to receive you. We have prayer leaders already stationed around the room. You can see them. I invite you to go to them for prayer, or if there's something you want to bring in front of the church, you can come up front. Let's stand together. Let's sing a song.